Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. Did you know that the month of March is Women's History Month? when we remember and celebrate the contributions women have made to history and society. Here at Beeson, we give thanks to God for the ways in which he has called and used women through church history to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Our guest on the show today is an expert in church history who spends some of her time studying women in church history. She's also a cherished faculty colleague here at Beeson, who disciples and mentors some of our female students and coordinates our Women's Theological Colloquium. Kristen, would you please introduce her to our audience? Hello, everyone. We are so glad to have on the show today Dr. Stefana Dan Lang. She is Assistant Professor of Divinity and Theological Librarian at Beeson. In her roles, uh, Dr. Lang teaches in the area of spiritual formation and coordinates, as Doug has already said, the Beeson's Women's Theological Colloquium. She is married to John, and they have three children. And I just a little personal word here, but I'm so grateful for Dr. Lang and her friendship and our work together in discipling and providing resources to our female students. So welcome, Stefana, to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. We always like to begin um, by allowing our guests to uh, share a little bit about your background, your story. Tell us where you're from and um, how you got all the way to Beeson. I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio, and I'm the daughter of Romanian Baptist immigrants who came to America separately. My mom came when she was just a child, just before the outbreak of World War II. And my father came as an adult in 1970. Specifically, he came to marry my mom, and they started their life uh, together in Cleveland. Um, there, there's a long story behind their, uh, their meeting and their marrying, but um, suffice it to say, uh, my parents ministered in Cleveland at the Romanian Baptist Church that was pastored by my grandfather, my mom's dad. And later, my parents became involved in cross-cultural church planting in the Cleveland area and in northeastern Ohio. Um, part of their work was uh, subsidized by the NAMB, which at that time was called the Whole Mission Board. And um, during their ministry years, they were bivocational since my mom had taught for a long time in the Cleveland public schools. And later, my dad worked in the public school system as well um, as an ESL teacher. So all that to say that my two younger brothers and I lived in Cleveland during our childhood. We were PKs, preacher's kids, and we were MKs, uh, missionary kids. So we were like doubly bad, you know. Um, after about 1986, we became international MKs as well, as my parents became involved in church planting, again, among Romanians, um, this time through the International Mission Board uh, in Australia. And so my high school and college years were spent in Sydney, Australia, until I uh, left home for seminary. That's it in a nutshell. Dr. Lang, some of our listeners will know that you are an expert in patristics, but not all of our listeners will know what the word patristics means. 
Would you let us know what it means to be a specialist in patristics? Yeah, I, um, I'm not, you know, the greatest expert, but I do love this, um, this area. Patristics conventionally refers to the era of the church fathers, um, which is a recognized group of theologians who taught authoritatively and who really defined the contours of church doctrines like the Trinity, Christology, ecclesiology, um, lots of other ologies. And they weren't just theologians or teachers. They also served as pastors and, and bishops. They were preaching and teaching and defending the faith. And um, this period, the patristic period, spans about the years 100 to 600 A.D. Um, now it's also acceptable to use uh, another label, um, late antiquity, to refer to this period. And so when you use the term late antiquity, then it's, it's a much more inclusive term, including both men and women and, um, you know, their, their great deeds, their impact in the church, etc. Um, but strictly speaking, the term refers to the church fathers and their contribution to doctrinal development. Since we have you on the show, I would love for you to tell our listeners about your book um, entitled Retrieving History, Memory and Identity Formation in the Early Church, which comes out of your study of patristics. What are you seeking to argue in your book and uh, what are some of your conclusions? I just wonder if you can give our listeners a teaser so that they'll go out and buy your book after listening to the podcast. Thanks for that question, Kristen. Let me back up just a step and just kind of talk a bit about how I got interested in patristics. My great interest in high school and college was always ancient history, um, mainly from about the 5th century BC through the late Roman Empire, like 3rd century AD. So I think it was various aspects of that time period that interested me like art, architecture, literature, religion, etc., and also the people whose ideas fueled all the events that I was reading about. So in high school, I studied the history of the Roman Empire from Augustus to Nero, so the beginning of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, and, and naturally, I thought a lot about the overlap of that material with what I was learning in church, both from the New Testament, which directly overlaps that period, as well as from the Old Testament. And in fact, in high school, I had kind of this aha moment where I realized that what I was studying in the Greco-Persian Wars overlapped significantly with the book of Esther. In fact, it overlapped directly with the book of Esther and the story there. And it just kind of blew my mind a little bit in, uh, in the 11th grade. But the ongoing history of the church fit naturally within the period of the Greco-Roman Empire. And so the patristic period was kind of a natural fit to capture my interest. So the patristic period told the story of the church after the apostles passed off the scene, and it included the church's perseverance through persecution and its eventual triumph through the emperor Constantine. And so while I enjoy studying doctrinal development, I also am very interested in Christian history writing and in Christian spirituality, artistic expression, and iconography. And specifically, this is now coming to my book, um, how Christians told their own story in various formats. Uh, and in this way, they shaped the identities of generations of believers throughout those tumultuous uh, first five centuries or so. 
So um, you asked about my book called Retrieving History, and the subtitle is Memory and Identity Formation in the Early Church. So you can see how that reflects, you know, interest that I've had uh, kind of all along. So my book is part of a series called Evangelical Ressourcement, and it's edited by uh, Dan Williams at Baylor, published by Baker. And the overarching point of Ressourcement, which means going back to the sources, um, is to draw on the ancient sources of our faith for the benefit of the church's present and future. And um, in my book, I'm really interested in laying out um, the value of history, how history was written in the patristic world, and what forms history took between the first historian, who's not Eusebius, but Luke <laughs> in the first century, and then Eusebius in the fourth century and, and after, those who followed his model of history writing. And so, you know, when you ask yourself, well, what came between Luke and Eusebius? Did the church really not care about its history? This is a question that um, uh, Dan Williams and I discussed, and uh, uh, the answer is yes, they did, but there are different forms of history. And so I kind of trace these in my book. So I talk about um, apologetic uses of history, martyrology, the stories of the martyrs, um, hagiography, which are the stories of the saints, saints' lives, I guess, kind of holy biographies. And then um, I also write about uh, church history proper in the form of Eusebius and then uh, those who kind of continued uh, continued his model. So what I'm doing in my book is probably not arguing so much as reminding and inviting and kind of pleading with folks to value the past because the past really does powerfully impact the future. And so um, in my book, I really stress remembrance because the Bible stresses remembrance. And uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, share a bit from the very last paragraph of my book that remembrance is a command from God to his people in the Old Testament, a mandate from Jesus to his disciples in the Gospels. It's an urgent exhortation from apologists and martyrs. And remembrance is also a task carried out by biographers and historians. And it's still an ongoing work that we do in the service of the church that we as Jesus's disciples ought to fulfill. So we need to remember noble people, notable events, um, great examples of virtuous character and, and steadfastness of sound doctrine. These should be praised, emulated, and passed to the next generation as we read in um, Deuteronomy so that um, the next generation will also set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. And that's a quote from Psalm 78, a, a historical psalm. So um, as we remember our forebears, we also ought to look to their God, who is the God of history, the God that they bore witness to and that we also bear witness to. So in a sense, we enter into that story and are sort of born along by it and our identity is formed by it as well. Um, both now and uh, into the future. And it's not just a, a personal individual identity, it's a collective identity um, because we are a collection <laughs> of, of uh, sinners saved by grace um, called the church. And that is how God has chosen to do his work in the world in history is through the church. Another one of the roles you play here at Beeson, Dr. Lang, is to teach our students spiritual formation. Uh, probably most of us have 
an inkling as to what spiritual formation means in a seminary like ours, but uh, how do you teach it to our students? And what role would you say spiritual formation should play in the lives of ordinary believers? Yeah, well, the, the first thing I tell my students is that formation is always happening both in positive ways and in negative ways, uh, in ways that we realize and ways that we don't realize. So, um, you know, when we say like, what is spiritual formation and how can we do it? Well, the thing is that it's always happening. Uh, it's constantly happening. If I, if I were to just state it concisely, spiritual formation is a lifelong process of sanctification for all believers, for um, um, congregants, for pastors, right, for all believers. Spiritual formation to me involves knowing and loving God, first of all, knowing and understanding and valuing ourselves, uh, and also understanding and loving others, our neighbor. And so through God's work of sanctification, we're able to grow continually in these ways. Um, increasingly formed into the image of Christ. So we know clearly what our goal is. So formation of any type is a kind of a training or conditioning to develop any particular skill, and it requires mentoring, modeling, practice, repetition, reinforcement, perseverance. (laughs) All of these things apply to uh, spiritual formation. And so... um, Spiritual formation, even pastoral, ministerial formation, they don't stop at seminary graduation, but uh, they need to continue um, in, uh, in the lives of, of um, our graduates and the lives of believers um, so that we can remain spiritually fit and not um, be spiritually stagnant. And um, I would say the way, the, the biggest way, the clearest way that spiritual formation can be um, engaged in is through the uh, spiritual disciplines and um, uh, you know, ways that ways that um, ordinary believers can uh, engage in um, disciplines that will help them, let's say through Bible study um, through uh, knowing and understanding the text better. Um, I, uh, I really like, um, you know, in addition to prayer and, uh, uh, meditation, um, solitude, carving out some silent time, um, some time alone to uh, look at the scripture, to sit with it, to listen to the Lord, maybe to journal with it. Um, one that I really like is called Lexio Divina, uh, Holy Reading. And um, in, in this practice, we really um, slow down, we allow ourselves to internalize the text, uh, allow it to saturate us, um, we can give close attention to details and allow the Holy Spirit to permeate and influence our thoughts about the text and to basically open ourselves up for the Holy Spirit to do his transforming work through the word. And so I find myself um, uh, constantly telling people as they read the scripture, um, slow down. (laughs) I like to read scripture um, in a group. I like to read scripture out loud. I like to walk through it at, you know, kind of like a relaxed, leisurely pace so that um, I can think through it and listen through it, you know, kind of put it together and integrate it 
um, uh, into, you know, the, the thoughts that I'm thinking and just to see what is, what is the Lord um, saying to me? How can I engage the text? What is he saying to me in my life as I, as I walk along? That is so helpful, Dr. Lang. And as Doug has already mentioned, we have you on the show uh, during Women's History Month. And this episode comes out the day after our Women's International Day. And given your work at Beeson Among Women and your work in church history, I wonder if you could uh, talk for a few moments about the contributions women have made in church history. Now that would take a whole long podcast. So or generally, or a few. <laughs> so generally speaking, um, I wonder if you can touch on that topic and perhaps drawing from your research in patristics, uh, perhaps you can share about a couple of women we should know about from that time period. So we would love to hear about women's roles in church history. Yeah, uh, that that would take um, uh, significantly more time. I'm, I'm going to answer by using a broad brush. So I'd say that women have been influential in certain ways in the public sphere and in more ways in the, the domestic and family sphere in the period that I study. And there are some, you know, exceptional standouts, but on the whole, you know, women Women functioned, I'd say, more um, impactfully in the church in that time in the domestic sphere. So if we're going to talk about the public sphere, it's not like all women stayed home. Some women did have some opportunity to travel. They had opportunity to learn. Most of these were wealthy women who wanted to consult with Bible scholars, maybe like Jerome, or um, they wrote letters to bishops like Augustine. One of the women that I write about in my book is named Melania, and uh, she and her husband, Pinion, were exorbitantly wealthy, I would say. But you know, they renounced their wealth and wanted to live a simpler life, a, an, an ascetic life, a life where they could think more, let's say, in a kingdom direction and use their money, use their wealth to invest it into God's work. And because they started traveling a lot as pilgrims, they were able to visit with a lot of Christian communities sort of throughout the, the Mediterranean and into um, North Africa. And as they saw needs in communities that they passed, they started to um, use their money to endow, to endow monastic communities or just to, to help um, impoverished communities that they pass through. Uh, there were a number of other wealthy women like Melania who helped to establish shrines in the Holy Land, churches in the Holy Land, monastic communities there. You know, they, they were very, very important and their legacy still stands um, even today for people who, who visit um, the Holy Land. One very famous person who had a very public testimony is Perpetua and also her servant girl, Felicity. We have them pictured in our dome here at Beeson. And in, in fact, they're the earliest ones, um, chronologically speaking, they're in our dome. And the, the story of Perpetua is written mainly by her own hand. Uh, you know, she kept a, a kind of a diary. And the kind of witness, the kind of bravery that we see from Perpetua and from Felicitas together is really convicting. It's, it's absolutely astounding. And so I would, uh, I would highlight that story. And 
let's say historically speaking, what we find with some of these stories like Perpetua's and also like the biography of Melania is that these stories were inspiring to to future generations who looked back, not just for examples, but let's say in the time that the church was persecuted, later generations would look back to previous generations and how they endured persecution. And they were kind of getting trained in the church in case persecution should come across their uh, their community. So I would say that women were also doing some very amazing things in the domestic sphere. For example, one standout, of course, is Augustine's mother, Monica, who just by her very faithful Christian witness and personal investment in the spiritual life of her son was, I think, enormously successful, even though she probably didn't consider herself to be a success as uh, as a mother. Another woman is named Amelia, who is the mother of um, we would call the Cappadocian family that uh, consisted of three, no less than three bishops coming out of that family. So Basil of Caesarea and Gregory of Nyssa and Peter of Sebasti all came from that family. Uh, And I also would have to mention their big sister, Macrina, who was the eldest child. And Macrina just was also a very faithful um, sister and a a Christian role model of just spiritual strength. I mean, she was just a rock, (laughs) even more so probably than than, um, her siblings. But uh, Macrina also was very, very loving, very kind, very compassionate passionate and basically uh, turned their home into a bit of a domestic monastery and um, ministered to just people who needed a place to live, especially women who um, had nowhere to go. There were frequently natural disasters, famines um, at that time. And Macarena actually took in a whole group of girls that were just wandering along the road with nowhere to go because they had been driven out of their home due to poverty and, and famine. So, you know, these are some examples. I I could point to others and we need like a whole show on that. But a book that I can recommend about women from this period is a book by my friend Lynn Kohick, who recently moved from uh, Denver Seminary, I believe, to Northern Seminary as their provost. And uh, she wrote a book called Christian Women in the Patristic World. And I would highly recommend that. Stefano, your friends and colleagues here know that you're also hard at work co-editing a new women's study Bible for Lifeway. Could you give our listeners just a little hint about what's coming there? Uh, Why are you doing a new women's study Bible? What are you doing in there? What's special about it? Yeah, I mean, it's a valid question. You know, why do we need another study Bible and why a women's study Bible? And you know, it's, it's a legitimate question. The editorial team uh, wrestled with it as well. And um, we, we believe that a new women's study Bible is warranted because of the massive shifts in women's discipleship over the last decade, and especially as a result of, uh, of the digital age, which um, in the words of my friend and co-editor, Hannah Anderson, the digital age has flattened traditional social hierarchies and raised up new voices and, it's importantly here, and put pressure on our interpretations of difficult Bible passages, especially those related to gender, 
race, power, and cross-cultural ministry. And so um, what we believe is that the best thing that we can do for women in this moment is to equip Christian women to draw them back to basics and particularly to the timelessness of the scripture. So what we want to do is to equip them with a study Bible that will illuminate the text in its historical and cultural context, um, situate it within the larger history of the church, and also model some careful hermeneutics. So are there lots of specialty Bibles on the market? Yes, absolutely. Most of the Bibles for women, the way that we uh, have um, have found it to be the case, are devotional Bibles, gift Bibles, journaling Bibles, um, um, coloring Bibles, doodling, or, or whatever. But uh, this product is... Um, a bona fide reference work. It is a, a study tool, a study resource. And um, what we want to do is to create a study Bible that is led and driven by the text to let the text determine, you know, what, um, what questions there are to answer. Let the text tell us what it wants to tell us um, and not just bombard the text with all of our questions uh, just from our cultural moment. But at the same time, we don't want to ignore um, the cultural moment that we are in um, with all of its issues. Um, another thing that we want to do that where we think that this Bible will make a really wonderful contribution is that uh, we, we hope this project can tap the burgeoning field of female scholars and church leaders creating a study Bible that is written by women for women. Um, and um, so I am actually amazed at how many women are currently um, not just doing a PhD or teaching classes, but how many are currently engaged in writing biblical commentaries right now. And I can tell you that within about two or three years, uh, we will have a flood of wonderful exegetical commentary works written by evangelical women drawn from all evangelical denominations. And it's very exciting. It was a real eye-opener to me as I contacted women to be our study note writers. And I'm very, very pleased that that is going to be the case. And so um, what we hope for this project is that it will uncover new insights and perspectives on um, the Bible, the text that we all love. We hope that it will model thoughtful and robust engagement with scripture by women. Uh, we hope to resource and equip lay women who love the scripture, but, um, but maybe have a um, limited biblical knowledge uh, that has been um, limited by years of maybe very thin discipleship. Um, and so in this sense, we hope that this study Bible will be a bridge between the excellent work that's being done by women in the academy and also the work that lay women are doing in their own ministries. And I, I can't tell you how many women who are going to write study notes for this Bible are not just academic, but they have a real heart for um, giving women a rich resource, a rich experience of the biblical text and answering the questions that are close to women's hearts. Well, I can attest that Dr. Lang is spending a lot of time on this project and has provided such vision and wisdom um, and leadership to this new study Bible. And I'm excited at it finally coming out in a couple of years. When is when is the expected release date on it, Dr. Lang? As far as I know, it's 2023. 
2023. Well, we'll have to have you back on the show at that time um, to share more about the study Bible. And celebrate um, with you. And celebrate. Kristen Padilla are also a contributing note writer to the Bible. And I wanted to make sure our readers, our hearers, our listeners know that. <laughs> Uh, thank you. I'm very honored to be asked to be part of this project. Uh, we can't let you get away from the show without asking you a question about Beeson. Uh, you came on faculty in 2018, but prior to that, you um, were no stranger to uh, these halls. Uh, you had taught classes as an adjunct um, several times. Uh, you had come in uh, for lectures and sermons at various points in your career. So I would love to know, as a committed Southern Baptist, uh, why did you accept the invitation to come on faculty at Beeson in 2018? And why should Baptists in particular consider preparing for ministry at an ecumenical, interdenominational, evangelical seminary like Beeson? Yeah, I'll answer, I guess, the second question first. And it's because this kind of school that is interdenominational reflects the landscape of the evangelical church outside of these classrooms. And I think it's important for people to be acquainted with various Christian evangelical traditions, because chances are that in the community where where, where they pastor, where they minister, there will be these other churches, ministers, who will be their peers. And it's important to, you know, to understand one another, to know how to how to talk to one another, how to form friendships and relationships, and how to form partnerships in ministry in order to benefit the community as a whole, and in order to be faithful witnesses to the gospel in whatever community uh, the Lord sets you in. I'll go back to your first question, you know, why come to Beeson? Gosh, the first time I came to Beeson was in 1999. And um, at that time, I was wandering around the halls here. Um, it was January and not many people were here, but Fisher Humphreys was here. Um, actually, he was officing in your husband's office, Kristen. He was in Osvaldo Padilla's office and he gave me a tour of the facility, um, which, you know, wasn't very exciting until we walked into the chapel. And when we walked into the chapel, that dome is just the historian's dream to me, the church historian's dream. And when I looked at that, I told Dr. Humphreys, it is, um, it's so traditional. It's a traditional form, the kind of thing that you'd find at a Catholic church or an Orthodox church in their dome. But instead of the disciples, Jesus' disciples, it has... Um, uh, figures from church history. And when I saw that, I thought, you know, Beeson reflects my love and appreciation for the church, for its people, for uh, its deeds, its history, its Lord that is, you know, over all the great cloud of witnesses. And, and all of these values are embodied in the iconography of the chapel. And the dome, I would say, is kind of a, a Hebrews 11 style, you know, a, a gallery of, of faithful disciples who have carried the, the church's mission forward, uh, a gallery of saints from every denomination. And so I think because it was very clear to me that Beeson embodied the values that I also hold dear as a disciple of Jesus, um, not just as a Baptist, but as a disciple of Jesus and as a church historian. And um, I think those, I connected with that, it resonated with me, and um, I wanted to come back 
again uh, as soon as you know as soon as I first saw it. And so I I um, I'm so happy that basically 20 years later we were able to make our sort of on again off again relationship to be permanent. Well, we're happy too, Dr. Lang. Uh, and as you know, we like to end these interviews by asking our guests what the Lord's been teaching them recently. It's kind of a crazy time to ask people this question because this has been such a, a difficult year for so many people. Uh, but in the midst of it all, is there anything that God's been doing in your life or teaching you uh, that you might share with the listeners as a way of edifying and encouraging them in their walk with the Lord? Well, it's very simple for me these days because there are the kinds of challenges and also um, distractions or discouragements uh, of the sort that you describe. What what I have found the Lord is teaching me um, through scripture and Bible study, group study, is just to to focus, to focus on the work that God has given me to do and not to worry about what anybody else is doing. And so just have to develop and maintain a single-minded focus and not to be uh, distracted. A great concluding word. You have been listening to Dr. Stefana Dan Lang, Assistant Professor of Divinity and Theological Librarian here at Beeson. She and her husband, John, have already become dear friends of Wilma and, and me. We're so grateful to you, Stefana, for giving us some time this afternoon. And we're grateful to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We continue to pray for you. We ask you to pray for us. And we say goodbye for now. listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Thank you.